How did a young black woman raise money for her cannabis business and become a role model for her community? Stay tuned to hear our guest, Nikki John, founder and CEO of Heritage Club, share her inspiring funding story. To women leading in cannabis, where we get real about what it takes for women to raise money in the cannabis industry. You can find us on the PodConnects network on iTunes, Spotify, and Pandora. I'm your host, Kira Reed. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Women Leading in Cannabis and stay with us until the end because we have a new segment, She Had My Back, where we celebrate women who take care of other women. It's a great opportunity for us to elevate women who do the hard work for each other. All right. Welcome to the show, Nikki. Ah, yeah. Thank you so much for having me. Nikki John is the founder and CEO of the Heritage Club and the Heritage Home Foundation. In 2022, Nikki founded the Boston-based cannabis dispensary and its nonprofit subsidiary to support safe cannabis consumption within the community and fight back against the war on drugs. Nikki is currently the youngest dispensary owner in Boston and is proud to support the community growth through her business and nonprofit. Nikki felt called to reinvent what it means to be a black business owner in the cannabis industry. When she did not see many others who looked like her owning businesses in the cannabis space, she felt a calling to change this. The legal cannabis industry stems from a call to end the war on drugs, which predominantly affects black and brown individuals in the U.S. Nikki felt she had to show that black people and women deserve ownership in this new industry as much, if not more, than anyone else. All right, Nikki, I'm super excited to get into this conversation with you. That was the best intro ever. Like, I just like hearing it told back to me, like everything that I've been thinking, believing, working towards, like that was super special. So thank you. Oh, you're so welcome. It was a pleasure to read it. It's very, it was inspiring me as I was reading it. Me too. I was like, yes, this is my why. And yeah, so I'm excited to talk about it. Excellent. So let's start with your amazing, incredible achievement of not only winning a license for a dispensary, which Anyone who's done this knows it's a major undertaking in itself. But you also had another serious roadblock to overcome because the percentage of women of color who actually raise money barely is enough to even register. I mean, women in general across the board in the United States received 1.9% of funding last year. And we know that women of color receive significantly less. So it's like not even registering as a full percentage. So your achievement is really an against the odds inspiration. Congratulations on what you have done. So tell us, why did you pursue this path? 
and then give us kind of the 10,000 foot view of how you did it. Yep. So my mom brought the opportunity to my attention and at first I was surprised and I was confused at how I was going to tackle something that I, I'm not the biggest cannabis user. I had used it in high school and my mom knew that. And she's like, yeah, this is like right up your alley. So I was like, all right, let me look at it. I was like, I don't really smoke a lot, but my mom said, take a look at the social justice aspect because that's, you like helping people. And this is an opportunity to create change and help people. So I was like, okay, that's what I'm looking for. And the second I looked it up, I, I knew that that's, what this entire industry is like just even for the people who are owning in the space whether they look like me or not where this is our prohibition this is our generation's prohibition and change has to happen and sometimes you need those big players to help make it happen but hopefully other small operators like myself get included when that happens so that's kind of what my mom spurred me into was looking into the process and I thought based off of what I saw on the state's website it was a 10-step process to open a retail shop and it's not just 10 steps and it's not that simple, but um, the first step in Massachusetts is to find a location. And I've been in real estate for over 10 years. So I thought that's going to be easy. And it's, again, really difficult because you need something that um, is not federally mortgaged, um, federal back mortgages. You can't have a cannabis dispensary there. So that limits you. Um, who owns buildings outright? It doesn't tend to be black people. So you can't really just tap into your network and say, hey, let me call a family member or family friend and see what buildings they own. And let's let's walk it, walk through it that way. Um, and it, it did take a lot of networking. So luckily, I was able to use that network that I already had and over the course of a year, find a location. But that part just took a year alone. And when you finally find that landlord, they want to know how you're going to pay the rent. <laughs> So I get there. Yeah. In Boston, did you have to um, show that you had real estate lined up? Because one of the problems we have in California is then we have to show we have it lined up and then pay for it until we get the license. Exactly. So that ends up a lot of people. Is that the same in Boston? Absolutely. Yep. It's the same in Boston. And because of how the market was at the time, the way landlords saw it is there was green tax on it. If you're doing cannabis, you're not paying regular rent. You're not paying commercial rent. You're not paying commercial retail rent, even though retail is kind of dying out. Um, you're not getting any discounts. So I was able to find a landlord who believed I could get this done and was willing to forego payment for what ended up being a year and a half that I was holding this property with no money. Not even a deposit. I don't even think I think I gave a thousand dollars. And like just the the people that I've met of who have supported me and believed in me, like I look back and I'm like, what did they see? Like what what was it that they were like, I believe in her? And it, it's one thing I'll say for anyone else trying to get into this. Make sure you tell your story and why you won't give up. Because you need to make it clear that you're in it for the long haul. This is not a get rich quick thing. This is a serious industry and business. So I was able to find someone who believed that. And that was like, that was the step one. So finding a location, now that I had a location, I had to find someone to help me pay for the rest of the startup costs. This is just the beginning. Um, and I ended up signing up for Lantern's Delivery Accelerator. And they were um, the ones who introduced me to Vicente Cedarberg, who's been around since Colorado. And finding really good counsel was so important just to make sure you don't waste time in the process. So being efficient with your time is the second most important thing 
to being efficient with your money. Um, just because time is money and the, the market and the industry keeps changing and getting more competitive and all of those things. So I was able to work with Vicente Cedarberg on licensing, but I still had to get money. I didn't have any money still. <laughs> so I'm talking to everybody. I'm still out here saying at all of these conferences and networking events, telling people I'm going to be one of the next owners. And they're like you and everybody else. So again, what makes you different? And I had talked to two different investors. One was like, I'm in, but I want half. And by half, they meant 49% because I would have to get, I have to keep 51% to be an equity applicant. So I was like, well, I haven't even gotten started. And then what happens if I need to raise more money? My back's against the wall. I was like, that's, and it's not fair. I was like, this can't be how it works. Like this, is this equity? Is this what this is supposed to look like? So I had so many questions, but I'd never, um, well, I went to school for finance and I'd taken a venture capital class, but I had never raised money in real life. Like I never really, like I had lemonade, Sam's yard sales, those kind of things, but this is like serious. So then I had another investor who was interested at a much better percent, but they wanted me to get through a certain portion of the process before any of the money would be guaranteed. So the way Massachusetts works and Boston works is you get an HCA with the municipality, so that being the city of Boston, you go to the state, and then you get a provisional license with the state. That takes like almost a year. And then from there, it's like another three to four months to open your doors. So you need to calculate, and everyone told me, add six months to whatever your projections are. And I think that was one of my biggest mistakes was that I didn't add the six months <laughs> and they were right. Um, but yeah, so I ended up finding somebody. And then during the process, the community tried to dictate who I could and couldn't work with in terms of investment. And it's already, as you said, really hard for women, especially women of color to find investment. So lost that investor. And I, I was a, a lot of people would have quit at that point, but I wasn't worried at this point. I realized like, if we get this, Someone's going to like, someone's going to be interested. The location, finding a good location is so important. It's what makes a difference in terms of any retail business, brick and mortar retail business. And I knew what we had. We had parking. We had accessibility to public transit. We had um, accessibility to the highway with 120,000 cars going by a day. So those are the things that I was pitching in these conversations. And then I decided a lot of people take money in before they get to the provisional licensure and all throughout this process, they're asking you for all this background paperwork on your owners. And all I could write was my own name, a hundred percent, me, Nikki John, a hundred percent. And I was like, they're like, where's the capital coming from? I was just like, it's on its way. I wrote that on so many documents and I was like, is someone going to stop me? Because I'm not going to stop. <laughs> so that's like, it, It ended up being one simple conversation with a friend of mine where she said, can I give you $5,000? And I said, I I was like, $5,000, I need 1.5. Like, that's really what I'm aiming for. But like, I'm not going to be disrespectful here. I was like, how do I politely like tell her how much money I really need? And I was like, you know what? I was like, yes, you can. (laughs) Good. And the next, yeah. A week later, she called me. She's like, all right, well, I talked to a few people. She's like, I think I have $500,000 for you. <laughs> and I was like, wow, wow, that happened so fast. Like, she was like, yeah. Um, she's like, do you want to pitch some people? Like, do you have a pitch deck? And I had had all different versions of a deck. Um, 
and we we set up some pitches and I invited all the people I had spoken to over the past two years about this. She invited some people from her network. Um, so this ended up being probably about a hundred different people that I talked to over the course of the next month. And in 30 days we had raised what we needed. And that was that. And then we did the paperwork through Vicente and that's high level how we got there, but there's more to it. <laughs> well, we'll dig in. I, I want to find out a little bit more about your education because you said that you started with an education in finance. When you chose that path, were you doing it because you knew you wanted to be an entrepreneur and you needed to understand that? Or did you just like numbers? Why did you, why was that the beginning of your path? Yep. So I went to school to be a doctor at first. I went to GW in DC. I was pre-med, um, studied bio and a minor in psych. And then while I was in DC, I ended up switching to psych and minoring in business because I started to realize that entrepreneurship was kind of where I was going. But I loved psychology. And I ended up applying for this internship at GW's business school. Um, and it was for graduate students. And I was a freshman. <laughs> And I had no experience. And I was like, I'm applying for this. And it was unpaid. And they ended up hiring me and then making it paid after the first week. And I was like, I knew it. I was like, some people might not have applied, especially women, not because we can't, but because the thing said graduate level. And I was like, sounds like me. <laughs> so threw my hat in there and that worked out really well. And I was like, I really like this. I don't know if I need to be a doctor. My mom's a doctor and I just wanted to be my mom. But I was like, you know what? I was like, I'm going to call my mom and tell her I'm dropping out. <laughs> and my mom was like, no, you're not. So she encouraged me to transfer to Northeastern, which is closer to home. And she said, just take two classes. And so I took finance and psych because I was like, what am I really studying for? And I was like, understanding money and understanding people. Those two things I can apply no matter how things pan out. So let's do that. And I fell in love with the finance. Um, and I still like stuck with the psychology. So I ended up doing a... Um, major in finance and minor in psychology. But a lot of the stuff that I learned in college, I actually use the accounting, the VC, the like understanding interest rates, like what does that really mean? All of those things have really been applicable. And then in the psychology, I just like the mind. And this is a people business for sure. The reason that I asked you is because I I'm coming to understand that a smart strategy for fundraising starts way before you even start your business, because there are so many things that you have to understand and put into place in order to be successful. And it's interesting, the more people I talk to about their journey, the, the more most of them actually had some kind of education around finance, or they've already been through this process once before. So you're more likely, it's like, what are the building blocks for success? Number one, get educated on finance and funding. Absolutely. And I agree with you on that because you want to understand the terms that you're signing. I think a lot of equity applicants specifically who don't have that background and who aren't being taught that in these state run or city run equity programs, they're at a disadvantage because they sometimes take those 49% deals. You know, and that puts you in a position where you you don't you don't really have the control that you are meant to or I think maybe want to or are dreaming about. So that's my biggest fear for people who kind of don't have that background, like you said, or don't have someone to ask. You don't necessarily have to know it all. It's just about knowing who to ask and who to trust 
definitely who to trust. <laughs> okay, so let's pick it up from there. So putting on the hat of being the fundraiser and that thought process. So you have this background in finance and your education and you come to realize you want to be an entrepreneur. You get introduced to the cannabis industry. Now, where, what is your thought process and approach specifically? You talked a little bit from that 10,000 foot view about, you know, kind of your process and getting the money. Can you take me in a little bit deeper and, you know, from the moment where you realized, okay, I need to raise money. Like what, what went into your mind in terms of what that strategy was going to be? And then if you could also share maybe some of the unexpected challenges and pitfalls, as you mentioned, you know, that wanting 49% from your first investor or them wanting that from you. Um, but what were some really unexpected things that maybe you can give us some insight into that we can prepare for in our funding? Yeah. So you're going to want to know who your advisors are. And as a woman, uh, and I'm not going to say that I agree, but just to prepare yourself, have a male advisor somewhere in the paperwork. I don't care if they're actually going to show up to any meeting. I think it really, really helps you get taken seriously. Um, yeah, because it's they want to trust you and they want to. And that's the how, again, the psychology. How does the mind work? So who are you probably asking for this money? You're probably talking to men. Um, they like what they know. They know themselves. They're like, okay, he said it was good or he's involved. Like that's going to make it a little bit different. Find experts again. Do you also have the same consideration about having a white person on your board? Absolutely. For that same. Absolutely. Yeah. Um, I would say like on, in my deck, I made sure it was diverse. <laughs> I think that's a good way to put it. Um, only because not because that, Black people or people of color aren't great ad advisors. My mom's one of my advisors. She's a doctor. She's an MBA. She's working on a master's of public health from Harvard. So, like, I have someone on there who I, I know is a rock star. But that's not enough, to, in my opinion. I don't think that's going to, like, move the needle. And then I also had Lori Lucian, who's a professor in cannabis law at Suffolk University, owns a few licenses and brands, actually, in the space, has um, invested in a few businesses, came from... Um, pharma. So she knows about regulated industries, another advisor. But people really do want to, again, feel like they can relate and that there's someone they can ask, like, is this a good idea? Um, so I think that's important to have. Um, I try to like keep my resume really relevant to what I was working on. So bringing up the accelerators, the different courses that I took, anytime there was an opportunity to sign up for a cannabis course, I did that. Um, any leadership opportunities. Someone had asked me if I would be like a part of this group MCAD that was starting for delivery. And I was like, absolutely. Like more networking, more opportunity for people to see who I am, how I operate in this industry, whether I have a license or not, like just things that will help kind of show your dedication to where you're trying to go and willingness to like start, try different routes till you get there. Um, so that was really important. I got this advice from one of my mentors. She said, anytime someone gives you an opportunity to speak, speak. So if you're at an event and they say, does anyone have a question? You better find a question. <laughs> like, and that's your chance to introduce yourself. I'm Nikki John from the Heritage Club. I'm opening a dispensary in Boston. My question is, and somebody might come up to you after. And if you're in a room where you can't talk about cannabis, I'm Nikki John, Vibe Residential. I'm a real estate broker. My question is, and now anybody, you can still start a conversation one-on-one -on -one outside of that, engage if they're interested in cannabis. 
Um, so that's kind of how I started a lot of like the conversations was dipping a toe in and I'm like, are these people like cannabis cool or are they just like <laughs> not trying to have that conversation with me? Um, so that was, yeah, that was how that went. And then, like I said, with the deck, like you want to have people on there that people can relate to and things about yourself that are relatable and that show your competence. Um, and it, cause one of the questions that I got, they were like, well, what do you know? And I had someone advise me to bring someone on who just had three more months experience than me, who was a white male. And I was like, you're telling me that 90 days is the difference between you giving me a million dollars. I was like, that's not fair. And I took it personally. I have that chip on my shoulder still. <laughs> I still do. Because you know that you would, they would not be saying, do you know a woman of color that can verify this for you? Right? Right? And they're like, they'll be able to like hold your hand and like teach you some of the things that they're currently learning. I was like, you don't even know if they're going to pass the test. They haven't even taken the test yet. I was like, that's not fair. So <laughs> I don't know. I just took that one. That one has stuck with me for sure. And just like the way people will talk to you. But you have to just let those things roll off and like stay professional, stay focused. Like don't let that get to you because you really didn't come here to be friends with everybody anyway. So <laughs> you got to stay very focused. Good point. Good point. You really can't take it personally, even though it's brutally unfair. Yes. And the tables never be turned. It isn't about you. And that is something that's hard to remember when you're pitching your baby. Yeah. And it's about trust building. And you know, like what builds trust for you isn't the same for what builds trust for them. And that relationship needs to be a relationship that you're comfortable with. So whatever dynamic you end up in, you need to be able to have real conversations with them because if you're seeing what we're seeing in Massachusetts with the prices coming down, being able to say to my investors, here's where we're at and here's where we're still going and always being transparent. Like that's been how I've been the entire time. It's always been about transparency. And I think consistency is important um, in terms of that trust building and asking for help. If you find really, you want your investors to also be advisors to you. If you think that they have expertise they can lend you, keep that in mind. So right now, from a marketing standpoint, I have a few investors that I'm trying to pick their brain on. What little things can we tweak to get the most out of our marketing spend when you don't want to spend a lot of money in this industry if you don't have to? Taxes are so high. So we're trying to make the dollar go as far as we can. That's kind of the outlook that I had was, what can I do myself? What do I have to pay for? And can I negotiate it down? I was like, is there a discount? Is there an equity discount? Is there a DBE discount? I was like, do you want to do it for free? And I'm not afraid to ask. It's up to other people to defend and protect their time. I'm all about valuing it. But if somebody will help me or even just answer a few questions, I think that's kind of the best way for me to figure out where I do invest the money when I when I do have it and I'm able to. So asking a lot of questions helped me get the information I needed. I had to send out a pro forma in a week and I didn't know what a pro forma was. <laughs> I didn't know what a pro forma was in cannabis. I had done a bunch of financial statements. I'd worked at State Street doing financial reporting. But a pro forma, I was like, huh? I was like, this I was like, did I miss something? So I called my friend who I took finance with that noisy and I was like, like, do you think you could help me make a pro forma? But she hadn't done cannabis ones. And she's like, well, She's like, once you make it, I'll review it with you. So I called somebody else. I was like, do you have a pro forma? I was like, any chance that you could send me your pro forma? I got someone to send me a template specific for cannabis. And I filled it out. Then I called my friend. We went through it. Then I sent it to a few people. They sent me feedback. Like, I didn't even really build that, like, entire pro forma. It ended up being, like, 10 tabs. Tons of, tons of data. 
backing up how we got to these numbers about what how much we would be able to make, what the market was looking like, um, how many minutes a customer would be in the store, how much they're spending, how much I needed from license to get through licensure, how much I needed in my first few months, like my runway. And yeah, we, we built out all the financial modeling, which was really, it's fun. Like looking back on it, I was like that, I impressed myself with that one. <laughs> Because I, I was nervous I wasn't going to be able to send anything. Yeah, that's a, it. Performers are very challenging. Uh, and, and you have a background in finance. So for people that don't, it's just, yeah, it's a massive document. It requires a lot of time. And in school, that's not what they called it. <laughs> you know? So, like, we, had, we did financial project, projections. Um, but, like, yeah, this is, it was very specific. And I had sent someone financial projections, and they're like, oh, well, like, do you have a little bit more? And I was like, all right, like, I need to just ask. And again, like I said, ask questions. Um, and I think it was more important to them that I showed my work than that I knew everything. But um, by showing my work, I showed that I not know everything, but I knew enough to be dangerous. And they're like, okay, that's good. <laughs> that's pa- this passes. So what's next for you? Are you in your funding process specifically? Are you coming upon needing another round? Are you building yourself for an exit? Do you want to become an MSO? What is your strategy going forward and what is the outcome you're looking for? So I do want to apply for some additional retail licenses in Boston and we'd like to be in other states in New England. Um, Like you said, MSO, I feel like I do want to be an MSO, but not in the bad way. Um, But people, if Dunkin' Donuts, right? If like New England runs on Dunkin', like, like, Dunkin' Donuts is in Connecticut, Rhode Island, all these places. It's not a bad thing. But when a cannabis dispensary does it, they're out-of-staters, and they shouldn't be selling coffee in our backyard. I'm like, all right. Like, at some point, it's business, and you do want to expand. And I think that would be cool because there aren't a lot of MSOs that are minority-owned. Um, that's one thing that you're you're just not seeing a lot of. Um, it's Al Harrington, his group. He is the largest, I think, black-owned MSO. Then you have Puff Daddy, who opened his or by buying up some of the licenses. But Al Harrington went through the licensure in all the states that he's in, and he's vertically integrated as well, which is very cool. We're not vertically integrated. Um, We are going to be applying for delivery this year. Uh, That will be interesting to see how that model ends up changing in Boston. Right now, there's a requirement of two delivery drivers per car, and that kind of cripples the model, which is very expensive. Um, so we'll see if uh, the CCC is reviewing regulations this summer and possibly things might change in the future. So hopefully, yeah, <laughs> but that's where I hopefully um, see us. And then the thing is, the timeline is dependent on how long these community process processes and the licensure process at the state level take. It could be one more year till we have our next license or we could have it this year. So we have two more locations in mind. It's just a matter of getting those done and then looking to new states. That's going to be something for like the following year once we we have a full year under our belt in Boston. So what is your what is your strategy that you're formulating right now for the next um, approach, I guess, of investors? So what is the next round of money you're looking for and what is your strategy to do it? Yeah. So for the next project, it's actually in Boston near South Station where the train comes in. And again, good real estate is like the cornerstone of like all of these things is like, this is a place where there will be people. We're not like hoping people come here just because we got legalized. So that's kind of one of the base things I try to bring up. Um, 
because you're seeing a lot of the there's closures that are happening in Massachusetts right now. So as businesses are closing, why is this location? Why am I as an operator different? So getting that like set up and then circling back first to the people that I've already been working with who have believed in me, invested and um, been advisors, that's going to be step one. And then if there's more that we need to raise, then going back out, we actually had used Mainvest to do some crowdsourcing um, for this first one, just for a small amount of money. And the reason why I did it was because I was like, this is free marketing in an industry where you can't really market. And now these people who have a stake in our business are going to talk about it as well. So even, and it was, you can take $500. It's not, it's not a large amount, like 500, well, it's, for some people it is, but $500 where it allows so many more people to ex, um, access investment in cannabis, where otherwise you have to be an accredited investor, you know, if you're, if you're looking for some of the larger amounts. So that allowed us to get people who live in Boston who want to be a part of this to be owners in, in this as well. So I thought that was really cool. And that's why I did that one. But um, I think we'll probably do some pitches up for these next locations as well to both our current and hope soon to be hopefully future additional investors. And I think I'll raise more money this time than I did last time, just so we have more buffer. <laughs> well, congratulations. And I wish you the absolute best of luck with the rest of your funding process of the future. I mean, you know, as a CEO, once you start raising money, that's kind of your almost full-time job now. So thank you. For that. Absolutely. Yeah, no, thank you. All right, Nikki, are you ready to hear about some amazing women who've stood up for other women in cannabis? Yes. I am so excited. Me too. I'm so excited because this is the first time we're doing it and I can't wait to share these incredible submissions with everyone. If you would like to submit um, a woman to celebrate for their support, send me an email at hello at women employed in cannabis, and I'll send you the submission form. Okay, let's get to it. Our first submissions are from Michelle True and Jennifer Noska, and they're both celebrating a very dear friend of the community and former and future guest on Women Leading in Cannabis, Kimberly Cargyle, CEO of a therapeutic alternative. Michelle says, she took a chance on me, took me into her company where I learned everything I know now. She creates a positive work experience with positive and inclusive leadership and compassion. I now have the opportunity to take what she taught and I'm opening a new retail storefront. Congratulations, Michelle. It's been a very long and difficult process, but we're almost there. I still have more to learn, but I know that our team has her support and the support of our whole family born from a therapeutic alternative. Thank you, Kimberly. And Jennifer says, Kimberly supports women in the cannabis industry by carrying women-owned brands on her shelves. We completely agree. Kimberly is a shining example of a woman who has other women's backs. I just happen to know Kimberly. She's just done the most incredible thing. She started a dispensary. And then within her dispensary, she started an incubator. And she now has enabled, I believe this, this is the 11th or 12th woman who worked in her company to now have their own license for a cannabis business. Some with dispensaries, some with cultivation, some with multiple, some with delivery. So Kimberly is actually an incredible woman who has other women's backs because she not only gives them stable employment, but she then takes those who are interested and elevates them into being entrepreneurs as well. So thank you, Kimberly. We greatly celebrate you today and we really appreciate everything you're doing for women. 
I just want to say that's amazing because that's the dream is like being able to pay it forward and help other people through this and just have that mentorship, just someone to lean on when you get down about what's going on. It sounds like Kimberly is like somebody I'd love to talk to. So this is so cool. I will be happy to connect the two of you because I think that every woman who owns the dispensary has the ability to do something like this. And I don't think there's any better way to elevate other women than actually helping to get money in their hands or to elevate them into their dreams. Absolutely. All right. Next is from Holly Carter. She is celebrating Kristen Nevedal. Nevedal? I apologize because I'm terrible with pronunciation. Kristen is currently the director of Mendocino County's Cannabis Department. Holly says, Kristen saw my proclivity and interest in the legal and regulatory side of things and let me sidekick. Contemplate policy with her, taught me about supporting businesses and compliance, let me grow out of her wings, and we support each other as cohorts and friends in and out of business life. She is never afraid to share more, to embrace me when I was crappy or obstinate, and truly supports my personal and professional development. Thank you, Kristen, for taking care of other women in cannabis. All right. Well, that was fun to do. And we'll do that at the end of every show. So if you've submitted a woman for celebration, come back to our next show to hear your shout out. And we'll read three submissions a week. Okay. Thank you so much, Nikki, for your time and for sharing your wisdom with us today. Thank you for having me. I'm going to submit someone for sure. There's some people who have had my back that I just want to shout out. Awesome. I look forward to reading them. And I look forward to um, being a part of your journey as you go forward. Please stay in touch with us as you progress, as you open more stores and accomplish more of your goals. I want to hear about how you're doing it. So please let us know. And I'd love to have you back and hear more of your story. Thanks again. Ladies, thank you for tuning in. If you have not yet downloaded the Roadmap to Funding, the essential guide for starting your funding journey for success, go to thepanthergroup.co forward slash Roadmap to Funding. It is a free download and we encourage all of you who are starting your funding journey to start there. Okay, if you're interested in reaching the WEIC community through a business membership, visit weicwomen.com for more details. Join us again soon for another funding conversation with women leading in cannabis. Thanks for listening to today's show. To check out more great cannabis podcasts, go to podconnects.com. Here's a preview of one of our other shows. Hey there, my name is Leah Babrudi, and I'm the founder and host of Chicks Podcast, where I discuss cannabis, psychedelics, and other natural medicines. I not only interview people who use them as treatment for different conditions, but also the entrepreneurs who share their knowledge on how they built their businesses. If this sounds interesting to you, give my show a listen. I'm sure you'll learn something that'll surprise you.